Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and uh, you've got just me today. Caroline will be back in a week or two. We have um, a really fun book today. This is a book that I'm already recommending to all of my friends who are readers um, because it's unlike anything else that I've read recently, and it that's right in the title, Unlikely Animals by Annie Hartnett. Now, Annie is also the author of Rabbit Cake, um, which received a lot of awards, and she's received fellowships from the McDowell Colony, Siwani Writers Conference, and the Associates of the Boston Public Library. She studied philosophy at Hamilton College, has an MA from Middlebury College, and an MFA from the University of Alabama. When she began writing Unlikely Animals, she was living in the groundskeeper's house in a cemetery, and that actually is not surprising once you read the book. <laughs> She now lives in a small town in Massachusetts with her husband, daughter, and darling border collie, Mr. Willie Nelson. Welcome to Writer's Voices, Annie. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so let's start with um, your border collie. Why did you okay. name him Mr. Willie Nelson? Um, you know, it's kind of embarrassing, actually. Uh, <laughs> Um, Willie Nelson, I think, is really from Texas, mm -hmm. but I thought he was from Tennessee, which is where, because I associate him with Tennessee, which makes sense, but um, Willie is a rescue dog from, from Tennessee. Okay, so, okay. Um, yes, And Willie I was is... looking for a name <laughs> that, uh, I believe in naming dogs um, with an IE name because it's like, it sounds affectionate. Um, <laughs> I had heard from a dog trainer that if you give them like a, a name that sounds like no, you know, they they have more trouble learning. But if you give them something that's like, you know, honey or Willie, um, they they uh, bond with you better. So that that's how Willie became Willie. Uh, are you a, a Willie Nelson fan? I guess, but not good enough because I would have <laughs> bro. Well, I um, spend part of my time in Austin. I have um, my kids and grandkids are down there and and so that is his where Willie lives now is outside of Austin, Texas. And I think he's originally from that area too. And Border Collies are absolutely one of my favorite dogs. The dog that we had when my son was little, which is like forty years ago, um, was a border collie and that was he was the best dog. Yeah, Willie is an exceptional dog. He really <laughs> yeah. is a, the, the, he's the a thing saint. that yeah, the thing I uh, found about border, at least the one that we had, they don't bark unless there's really something important going on, and then they'll bark to get the attention, but otherwise they don't, and that was um, something I really appreciated about him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Willie's not, not much of a barker. Yeah, um, yeah we've never had, I, I've had a lot of border collie mixes, and I, I actually never thought about that, but yeah, they, they, they aren't big barkers. Yeah, and they're very loyal. Um, mm -hmm. I have a story about one time my sister-in-law had taken my son somewhere, and when they, he brought him home, we weren't back. I wasn't there, and so she wasn't couldn't leave him at the house, but he didn't want to get back in the car with her, and the dog was not going to let her take him. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're exceptionally smart. Yeah. They're, they're really smart dogs. Yeah, Willie is, um, he's a big time caretaker. So he, we have a three year old daughter. So he's just Aww. very loving. And, um, so if you started writing unlikely animals when you were living in, uh, in a cemetery and you now have, um, a three year old daughter in Massachusetts, how long, how long ago did you start writing this book? Well, so that is, that is, <laughs> Both true and not true of that. So I was in, um, I mean, it's, it is true. There was a, um, you know, it's not like, it, there's never an exact like, oh, I, or sometimes I guess you, you open a document and that's you immediately start writing that book and that's that book. And maybe that happened with Rabbit Cake, my first book, um, because I, I did open a document and call it Rabbit Cake and start writing it then. So I guess. But with Unlikely Animals, I was writing Rabbit Cake, and I was in my MFA program in the University of Alabama. 
And I had a professor who said, you know, you're obsessed with this novel, Rabbit Cake. I know you're going to finish Rabbit Cake. You're supposed to write in, in, in the MFA programs, you know, like you're supposed to write a book length work. So I was writing for, for your thesis. So I was writing Rabbit Cake and it was about 40,000 words and it was, which is a very short book in terms of publishing world, but it's fine for an MFA thesis. Um, so I had a professor, Michael Martone, who said, you know, I've seen a lot of people go through this program and a lot of people who just obsess over that one book. And sometimes your first book that you write doesn't get published. Um, so he doesn't, so he likes to see people continuing on with their with their writing, no matter what happens to that first book. Instead of you know, if that book, first book doesn't get published, then then no, then no more. <laughs> you throw in the towel. <laughs> then throw in the towel. And he had seen a lot. You know, he'd been a teacher for a really long time. He just retired like two years ago, I think. Um, and so, so his advice to me was set aside rabbit cake because I know you're going to finish that book and work on something new. So for the last month or so that I was in the program, I worked on something new. Um, but then I went back right after graduation to finish writing Rabbit Cake um, and really focused on that for the next two years. Um, and so the, and that book came out. So we sold it in 2015, which was two years after I graduated from the program. And then uh, it came out in 2017. So those four years, and I had, I worked other jobs at that point. So those four years from when I sort of started the project, which was a, a book about fifth graders, um, which does, is, um, is in the book. Uh, but so I started the book and then set it aside for three to four years mm-hmm. um, and then started it in earnest in really 2000 beginning January, 2018 is when I really picked it up again. Um, so then from then I, um, I really finished the first draft in October, 2018. Um, and then we sold the book in the wonderful month of February, 2020, oh, wow. uh, which was a real <laughs> high point. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it didn't actually take me, you know, in terms of a book that caught that was a lot of research, didn't take me that long to write, but there was a lot of time. Uh, there was there was a lot of probably I would just say wasted time on my end because I I kind of get in my own way sometimes with writing. Um, but once I really like started to put my butt in the chair and actually write and really actively go out in the world and look for things to write about. Um, it didn't, it took me like two years, which is pretty short in terms yeah, of yeah. how long people spend writing. Um, but then I had about four years where I wasn't really writing much. So, um, I was looking at your website and, uh, the, uh, the butt in chair theme is pretty strong. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you, you and, uh, a fellow writer have started accountability workshops to help other writers with that issue. Do you want to tell us a little yeah, bit so about this that? Is sort of, this is the, uh, yeah, the theme of my life right now because, um, so yeah, I, I, I finished rabbit cake, sold rabbit cake, rabbit cake came out two years later and I didn't really write in that time. I, I, I thought I would try to, but I didn't really. Um, and um, then my friend Tessa Fontaine, whose um, memoir, The Electric Woman, um, came out in 2018, a year after mine, and she emailed me. And we were not, we I had not really known her. She went to the University of Alabama with me, but I hadn't really known her there. So she had emailed me kind of like a stranger, but I blurbed her book, and she said, you know, you're a writer in the world. You have this first book. How do you write a second book? Um and I said, I have no idea. I am lost, um, but maybe we could help each other. And there's this great essay by Amy Bender um, about uh, having an accountability partner who who you have a contract together. It's on Oprah.com. If you Google Oprah.com, Amy Bender, this essay shows up and it's are called The Best Way to Get Creative is to Make Some Rules. And so they sign this contract And every day they email each other that they're done. And then the other person emails back check. Um, And so Tessa and I did that starting in January 2018, which is I know that's when I started the book in earnest. 
And that really made everything possible for me and, and for Tessa as well. Her second novel comes out with FSG, I think, probably sometime in 2024. Um, and it really changed our lives and it, it changed my relationship with my writing um, and just made me happier, less tortured. Um, so Tessa and I then kind of, especially now we are both mothers of young children, like realized that this is something that we needed, but also that other people could benefit from. Um, so we now run these workshops that are kind of, we call them anti-workshops a little bit because we don't read each other's work. Um, they're just groups where there are accountability groups and they're, um, and we are the coaches. Um, so they, those have been super successful so far and really full of wonderful people who um, really bond. And right now the workshops are all full, but hopefully we'll be offering more in the fall. Um, so, and we have a podcast too, which is about, um, about this whole issue, which is called, and about parenting as well. It's called Here to Save You. And it's about that feeling of wanting to save someone from a creative rut or also wanting to save someone from having a child, um, just kind of like that, like, oh, I wish I could, you know, come cook all your meals or come take care of you. Mm. And uh, so yeah. with these, with these workshops and the podcast, does that take time away from your writing? Um, yes. <laughs> um, the podcast especially is not a paid, uh, venture. So, yeah, that I know one. all about that. <laughs> yeah. I've been doing this for 16 years. <laughs> yeah, so it's um that's definitely uh it's good, definitely good for our friendship and we have, you know, it's great to talk to people who um you know, especially as we're still in this never-ending pandemic, like connecting with people that you might otherwise have gotten to talk to at some literary events but haven't seen or spoken to in years so like we just did a, a podcast episode last week with um the writer Fook Tran who is a um he wrote Saigon which is a great memoir and he's good friends with one of my best friends but I haven't and his book came out in 2020 and I would have definitely met him and I and I have not so um it was great to talk to him um so yeah it's and then the but the workshops you know we do get paid for so I, I do a lot of teaching and some of that is just you know how to pay the bills beyond the writing um so you know it, it is it is well one thing I think that I've learned um is that you don't need a full day to write or you you don't need really any longer than an, than an hour at a time to write you just need scheduled time to write so as long as for many people, not for everyone, probably, but um, for many people who struggle, um, you, it's not that you need to write every day. It's just that writing, having some sort of routine really helps, um, I think, creative people um, just get to work and, and kind of get out of their own heads and, and deal like push aside all the confidence issues we all have. Um, so I have become a person who is super into scheduling my creative time. I think that's great advice. Yeah, that's probably the uh, one of the most important things you could learn. Yeah, it's uh, it. I mean, it sounds almost like basic, but it it really um, can be life changing for people. Right, right. So, when at what point in your life did you know you wanted to write novels? Um, I. I wanted I I wanted growing up to be an uh, a cartoonist and <laughs> um, different path and then I had a a a teacher um, who was uh, my, my art teacher in in high school uh, sort of pulled me aside one day and she has also teaching me an AP art history which they offered in my my high school senior year and she said you know I have to tell you. I know you love art, but I think you're a much better writer than you are an artist. And oh. like dagger to my heart. Um, okay, but and... I I've looked at your drawings on here. I don't. I'm. I mean, you're a, you are a great writer, but you're really very talented as an artist too. 
Thank you. Well, it, this book, Unlikely Animals, has brought back art into my life. So it's, um, it wasn't, it, I mean, it It was, my husband always talks about, he, he read some, I guess, it's, I think it's called The Drunkard's Walk. There's some self-help book that he read young that's like a the wayward walk that we all take through life. Um, and so that was kind of a, a wayward, um, it pushed me in a different direction, which I hadn't been headed on before. So um it in some ways helped me because it's just, you know, life is random. And so I decided not to major in art from that advice and um, majored in philosophy instead and loved my philosophy, especially one professor, um, but had no real idea what I was going to do, um, you know, when I quote, unquote, grew up. Um, <laughs> well, what do and, you do with a degree in philosophy? Yeah, I mean, mm. there's really, you can become a philosophy professor, um, but a lot of people who major in philosophy uh, become lawyers mm. um, or uh, you learn how to argue in philosophy classes. You also just learn how to... Um, think about questions that are unanswerable um and that is good for people to i don't know you could go to divinity school you can mm. you can really do um anything that requires like uh good writing skills and deep thinking um so that's i mean pretty broad but uh it but it didn't really you know it didn't say obviously you will go ahead and do this after you graduate any right um right. So after my my senior year, I had I took a class with a and I was an environmental studies minor. I was very passionate about um, which they didn't have a major. So that was my sort of passion in college was um, environmental problems. But um, I took a then I took a, a class in a creative writing class my final semester of college and I had a professor um, who was visiting from Syracuse, his name is Christopher Kennedy. And he said, you're very talented and you should go get an MFA after college if that's something that interests you. And I said, well, what is an MFA? Um, I had no idea about graduate school and creative writing. I had no idea that you could go for free. Um, it was just a whole world that he like opened for me one, you know, office hours. Um, so I, I quickly changed my minor, not that it really matters what you minor in, um, but I did have enough English credit to change it. Um, mm. So I was a creative writing minor for probably six weeks of, <laughs> of college um, and didn't have to do anything other than, you know, go and declare it. Um, and so I... I I really became that was like once I ha once I had that idea in my mind that's what I wanted to do and I wanted to follow his advice exactly he said that he in his experience that people got the most out of graduate degrees in creative writing when they took a couple of years and then went back you know worked regular jobs and and then they were able to appreciate like all the time you have in graduate school that if you go from college to graduate school it feels the same so you never get that sort of grind of nine to five, then back to the like relative huge amount of freedom that you have in school, even though you have to teach and you have, you know, classes and all that. So, um, which was good advice. So I went back and went to Alabama when I was about 25. Um, and yeah, so once, once I had that, uh, encouragement, that was, um, so those are the, between the art teacher and the, and the creative writing professor about like those made the whole, um, it's very you know, interesting. People really pushed you towards writing, and yeah, and um, I didn't know that that was something that I would have um, would have pursued otherwise if I if I hadn't gotten such strong advice. Wow! But. And it's it's I think it's more common for me to talk to writers who, you know, maybe got discouraged from pursuing a career in writing. And so it's really interesting that that happened to you, but I think it's um, obvious because you really are an amazing writer. So oh, certainly, these certainly these uh, teachers saw that and uh, and well, knew sometimes to you, know, you, you. <laughs> you brought up the drawing, so the drawing became another. You know, I stopped drawing from basically high school on, and then I was um, 
Right Unlikely Animals at McDowell in New Hampshire, where I was there for a month to work on the book, um, which is an artist colony, people from all different um, disciplines. And, and I was there at the same time as a New Yorker cartoonist, Amy Kurzweil. And I was like, you, you know, you're who I wanted to be when I grew up. You're the coolest. <laughs> Um, and I, and I said, you know, I'd love to be a fly on the wall in your studio. And, um, so I, uh, I, and, and she, she, um, brought her drawing supplies to dinner one night and afterwards showed me like sort of the whole, how she does it, like how she comes up with a joke, how she, how she does it with pencil and then she does it in ink and then she does it in ink wash. And so every night after that, you know, I would never work at night. I would work all day. Um, and so I would work all day and then we'd have dinner together and then we would, a group of us would draw every night and draw cartoons. Um, so that got me back into it. And then I have done, I did the drawing project, which is everybody who pre-ordered unlikely animals got a cartoon in the mail a custom cartoon. I drew any animal that people wanted. Um, and a lot of, I originally said no pet portraits cause they take me so much longer. Um, but people really wanted pet portraits. So I ended up doing, um, <laughs> 461 drawings total. And then I think 160 of them were dogs and then <laughs> 60 of them were cats. And then the rest were like, you know, the random, like I want a mountain lion. I want a, uh, a bat. Um, I want to pick me hippo. Um, and so that really, that brought it back into my head. And there is a tiny voice in my head that I try to ignore, but sometimes I'm like, if I hadn't stopped drawing, like how good would it be now? Mm, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. But, you know, you can't do everything. Well, so. if you want to see some of Annie's drawings, they're on her website, AnnieHartnet.com slash drawings. And um, they're just as cute as can be. There's an looks like an otter and a duck and a rabbit and a goat and um, a some kind of porpoise with a top hat and <laughs> <laughs> a narwhal with a top hat a narwhal a, with a, a top hat yes yeah. yes <laughs> and a unicorn on a bicycle <laughs> yeah people requested the craziest things and uh, and, and uh, Phoebe Waller Bridge. <laughs> yeah, that was the one. I said only animals, and then one person was like, "But I really, really want a picture of Fleabag after she won uh, <laughs> all those awards with her smoking the cigarette, that like iconic picture from a couple of years ago." And I was like, "Well, if you really wanted that, that I'll do it." <laughs> so, Annie, let's get back to unlikely animals. What is this story actually about? So, yeah, it's a hard book to describe. Um, it is a book that is about a young woman named Emma um, who has returned home to small town New Hampshire. Um, and she's got a slight healing touch in her hands um, that she was born with. So there's like a touch of magic in it. And she's come home to this small town where she was kind of a golden girl um and she's come home having dropped out of med school so feeling like a failure and she's come home to take care of her father who is suffering from a mysterious brain disease and she knows that no matter how much healing touch she ever had in her hands she doesn't have enough to cure her father so it's a book that is um about returning home to someplace you never like to your hometown we never thought you'd go back to and it's about um you know, dealing with an aging parent, an aging and dying parent. And, um, but it's a funny book. It's a, um, it's a darkly comic and, um, lots of, uh, lots of crazy stuff happens. The father is, um, because he's suffering from this brain disease is hallucinating small animals in the house. Um, and he's also developed a friendship with the ghost of a real life naturalist, Ernest Harold Baines, who, um, lived in this area that I researched um, and was inspired by. Uh, and so this this ghost in the book was a, was a real man, and he lived in this part of New Hampshire from 1904 till 1925, and he was like a real-life Dr. Doolittle and had animals in his house, um, and and he Foxes was and bears. And... Yeah, he had foxes <laughs> and bears and 
and wolves and um, tons of birds and two tame bison and, and deer, and they were all in his house. And so once I found, I stumbled upon him in researching this area of New Hampshire. And once I had him, I really wanted to write about him, even though the book is set in 2014. <laughs> um, so he's a ghost in the book. So is finding him and wanting to incorporate him, is that what led you to um, kind of the point of view of, in the book, which is the inhabitants of the cemetery? Um, yeah, it was... Um, much like sort of, I was just talking about the wayward walk of life. This is the wayward <laughs> walk that this book was made from. Um, it was, uh, I, I wanted to write, someone had told me when I was writing, when I, when they read rabbit cake or a bunch of people had told me after reading rabbit cake that I wrote like John Irving. Um, and I was kind of embarrassed to admit that I had not read any John Irving uh, or very embarrassed to admit, but I hadn't read any John Irving. So at that point, I read John Irving and starting with Garp and going, you know, to Owen Meany and then on to um, probably six more of his books. Uh, I haven't read them all, but, um, and I was like, oh, that is how we would want to write a novel. This like <laughs> grander. Um, and so I was writing, um, wanted to write a book like John Irving that was a grander, uh, rabbit cake is so much, it's like a first person voice driven story that so much of the plot doesn't, doesn't matter almost. It's really a book that matters. What matters is that character's voice. Um, and so that was my experience writing a first book. And then I wanted to write something where the plot was pretty or extremely, I would say intricate, um, and everything caused something else. So that was my goal for the second book. And so I originally wrote the book, um, that had a lot of research because I found this real history with this. Um, well, so the history, um, I found this man, I was driving along New Hampshire and I stumbled upon this um, Gilded Age mansion, which is just this huge mansion in sort of the middle of a town in New Hampshire that doesn't have any other mansions. Um, and then I found out that it was, um, a Gilded Age millionaire who had moved there and he had built this mansion and he had then behind the mansion bought up uh, 60 farms and fenced in 60,000 acres or 26,000 acres. Sorry. 20, he fenced in 26,000 acres and, and started this exotic animal hunting park. And, um, and, and it is, was just, it's still that today. And it's still there and it's still intact. Um, <laughs> So I discovered this and I'm like, you know, just by driving around visiting friends in New Hampshire. And, um, and so I started going into a historical society in this town and it's Newport, New Hampshire is the real town, although it's, um, heavily fictionalized in, in the book. Um, and so I started going to the historical society and that's where I discovered Ernest Harold Baines, the Dr. Doolittle character who lived, who was the official naturalist for the park. Um, and lived at the edge of the park and, and had the animals living in his house. And he was there to study the animals in the park um, and take pictures of them. And his wife was a photographer. And so he, but I was already writing a book that was set in 2014 about the man with the brain disease and his daughter. So he became the first ghost in the book. <laughs> um, and I was writing. Um, so I, and because Ernest Harold Bain's writings and all his, um, his writings and his, wife's and his pictures are all in the public domain i was able to put them in the book um and in the orig original i had actually more historical documents in the book just to kind of figure out what i was really interested in um and so i have those throughout as like sort of the texture and to tie these two time periods together than 19 you know 1912 ish time with um with 2014 um where the book is set and focused on this family and then uh so i'm writing it but i wrote it in this third person omniscient booming voice like a john john Irving uses that often um and so it was omniscient third person omniscient originally and then i had a friend who said you know um why does this omniscient narrator have so much personality you know omniscient narrators <laughs> don't usually tell jokes 
um, you know, have have a real personality. And I'm such a voicey writer that I really I have to, you know, have have a personality in, in the writing. So um, but I, I told him I didn't care originally. I just needed to get that first draft out. Um, so I got the first draft out and then I was at McDowell um, for that month to figure out, you know, all as many problems as I could in a month. And one of the problems I knew I had was who was telling the story. And I needed it to be omniscient because of the way that I wanted to to tie this intricate plot together. Because so much of the plot is really just about this place and this town. That it's not just about the the family. Um, they're the center point, but there's I wanted it to be this sort of about the town. Um, so I realized I was at McDowell and Thornton Wilder wrote Our Town at McDowell. Um, and the Our Town Cemetery is right there down the street. And I thought, well, well could I do something <laughs> like that? Um, and it just felt like this great gift. So I tried it. I was scared to do it because George Saunders had recently written Lincoln and the Bardo at the time. Um, so I didn't want to be like a poor man, George Saunders, but <laughs> I um, I tried it. I showed it to some friends that were there, and they were like, "This is all you. This is this makes sense." Even though they hadn't read much of it, but they gave me the permission I needed. And so then I didn't question it again, and um, it really made the whole book gel together because, you know, I was so interested in these two time periods of this of this real town. Um, but it was a lot to ask a reader to sort of make the leap between them um, without without me having the ghost. And so the ghosts are in the cemetery telling it. Um, and, of course, they care about both um, 1910 and 2014 because some of them were alive in 1910. And, um, and then the ghosts in the cemetery, like, are still very much involved in the fabric of the town. So... Even if they didn't live during, you know, the invention of the automobile, they really understand everything about a car. There's nothing that is feels foreign to them about, you know, 2014. Sometimes they say, you know, kind of nasty things or, or um, dis- like something that my grandparents might say, like, why are you always looking at your phone? Um, <laughs> you know, they, they see sort of like the problems that modern technology has caused all of us Um you know, in a way that, um, cause it is somewhat foreign to them cause they never lived with it, but they, but they don't, you know, say like, what is a cell phone or what is Jurassic Park? Um, so they understand everything that goes on in the town cause they are omniscient, um, within town limits. They mm. don't know what goes on outside of the town, ah. which is somewhat important. <laughs> and they're so charming. <laughs> Yeah, they're a lot of fun to write. They're a lot of fun to write. Um, they all have their personalities. Now, one of the themes of the book also, in addition to the idea of returning home and caring for an aging parent, is um, the opiate crisis. What led you to want to include that? So I so the, it is based on this real part of New Hampshire, um, Newport, New Hampshire, and then sort of the surrounding towns because that since the park is so big, um, it spans actually five towns. Um, and and there's actually a very cool article in um, the New York Times this weekend about um, Croydon, New Hampshire, which is right next to Newport, um, and about sort of democracy in that town um it's it's a wild story that doesn't really have anything to do with my book but um but it it, like google croydon the new york times and get a sort of crazy story of why democracy matters um and so it spans the the whole it spans five towns um and the park spans five towns and so i did research both in newport and then and then north um and it's just Sullivan County, New Hampshire is pretty, um, has been pretty hard, very hard hit by um, the opioid crisis. Um, and it's been a problem there since the 90s. Um, and so I'm both, both, I did a lot of research into the town, spent a lot of time there, um, you know, and it's what the town shows up for. And like, when you look in the Boston Globe, like what, does this town, you know, get mentioned in big city newspapers? That's whoa. It's like, um, 
It's that it's there's a, a article I think from 1999 that says you know big city drugs come to whistle stop stop town. Um, mm. So it's it really has cast a shadow over this part of the world. Um, and I didn't really intend to write about it. I would never say I'm going to write like a darkly comic book that addresses the opioid crisis. But I also sort of um, you know write wherever whatever is in my head and then kind of worry about it later. Um, and so the character, it, it first showed up sort of in the characters that I wasn't thinking about it uh, beyond like, you know, I think this character would have struggled with that if he's stuck in the town and he's, you know, dealing with small town boredom um, and, or, you know, or the ways that the different ways that people end up um, using is, all sorts of different ways one character you know was prescribed after a football injury um and then wasn't able to you know uh, to to deal with his addiction until he got um and he has that's this is the brother character has a lot of support from his parents so he's able to um get, he goes to rehab twice um and he has a lot of support and that makes all the difference although it's kind of it's a book so much about like how much can you um help it became a bigger theme in the book the more i read about it and the more the characters became real to me um and so i just made sure that i tried to um really consider all sides of it and make sure that i was not um ever I, it's really important to me no matter what i'm writing about that i'm not never um sort of punching down and that i'm never as much as i identify as a comic writer and being funny is important to me. It's also very important for, to me to never be mean. Um, so I'm always editing my humor no matter what for meanness. Um, and and I, I can, and everyone can, I think, get mean in their humor, but um, especially when you're just trying to write as many sort of, um, sometimes this comes out more, I think, when I'm trying to write just just jokes for essays um like i'll do things put the names of my ex-boyfriends or or my husband's ex-girlfriends in in a book and they're placeholders because i would not ever like have them stay there because that's just like <laughs> crosses a mean line for me but but to put emotion in there you know i don't like that person so it helps me <laughs> to sort of um create a character but then I always try to at least I mean maybe someday it'll end up just staying in there but I always try to add out any meanness um so the characters who um who do struggle with addiction I did want to make them just fully realized people and not just you know sort of stereotypes of any um problem um you're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is Annie Hartnett, author of Unlikely Animals. Annie, would you like to read from the book today? Sure. Um, I will read to you a section that's actually from Ernest Harold Bain's um, section. So he's he's the um, Dr. Doolittle character. So this is a mixture of his voice and my voice. Because um, I would take his writings that are in the public domain and then edit them for my purposes. Um, so this is a little story about his life with his fox, the Sprite. Um, and so it's called The Loyalty of Foxes. Mrs. Baines and I never had children together, nor do we particularly want them, because we kept such a full and active household of coyotes, timber wolves, skunks, deer, squirrels, a baby bear, and many, many birds. But of all the animals we ever lived with, it was the fox who was our shared favorite. The sprite had more personality in the tip of his little blackberry nose than most men have in their entire being. Mrs. Baines and I started out with three fox cubs, all taken from a burrow in Corbin Park, sniffed out by a friend's hunting dog. Even at this young age, the sprite was different from his brethren, brighter somehow, smarter, and bent on adventure. Perhaps this was a werefox, we thought, and in the morning we should awake to find him a human infant curled up in the leaves between two baby foxes. Or perhaps he, he would change us all into foxes in the night. There was truly something fairy-like about the third little cub, and so that is why we named him the Sprite. 
Whenever the sprite saw us, he expressed his delight by wagging his tail, pulling back his ears, and jumping up, much as an affectionate dog would do. In fact, from the time he was a tiny cub, he exhibited great pleasure at being reunited with me or Mrs. Baines when we had all been out of his sight for an hour or two. His expressions of delight were usually accompanied by a vigorous, open-mouthed panting. His eating habits were a great source of amusement for us. He was particularly omnivorous and ate almost anything we offered him from our own table. One of the few things he would refuse was pineapple, and to that he showed an unmistakable dislike. He never ate all his food except for candy, licorice his favorite, but he would hide what was left somewhere in the house. Once I saw him mount a chair and and place a piece of meat on the shelf. Of the three drinks he was accustomed to, namely water, milk, and coffee, he had a decided preference for coffee. He would lap up half of Mrs. Baines' cup most mornings. His His appetite became a problem, however, once he got a taste for chickens. He was very young indeed, no more than a toddler, when he began to take an interest in poultry. I was playing with him in the garden when through a gap in the fence there flounced a fussy black hen. The fox caught sight of her and his eyes seemed in danger of popping out of his head. If it can be said that a fox loves chickens, this was a case of love at first sight, and his love only escalated from that first affair. Poultry hunting soon became the Sprite's favorite sport. He had many interests in life, but that was his chief one. The fox's other flaw was that he was possessive, and he grew quite visibly in love with Mrs. Baines as he grew older. He thought she was his mate, and once or twice he snarled at me, his chief competitor. Mrs. Baines suggested I might trap him a vixen, but I was against trapping another fox, at least for the time being, after the twin tragedies that had befallen the Sprite's poor siblings. I'll spare the details, and of course we were sad about these happenings, the more so because we were to blame. Both tragedies might have been avoided had enough forethought been given and the necessary precautions taken. But until one has had long experiences with young creatures, it is difficult to think of and guard against all of the many misfortunes that may overtake them. Fortunately, neither of these victims happened to be the sprite, so their loss, much as it distressed us at the time, does not seriously affect the rest of his tale. Isn't that the rule? The hero can't die, at least not until the very end of the story. <laughs> Thank you. And that was Annie Hartnett reading from Unlikely Animals. So uh, you mentioned that your first book, Rabbit Cake, was about fifth graders. And there's also quite an interesting bunch of fifth graders in this book as well. Why fifth graders? What is it about them that you, that makes you want to write about them? Yeah, so the first book, Grab a Cake, is about a single fifth grader. It's about um, Elvis, a young girl whose mother has drowned while sleepwalking, and it's told in her voice. And then there is a, a whole batch of fifth graders in Unlikely Animals. Um, Emma, the, the young woman who comes home, the next school dropout to take care of her father, um, ends up teaching fifth graders. Um, as a substitute teacher. Um, I love, I was a, when I was right out of college, I taught um, fifth and sixth graders. Um, So there's kind of a real personal uh, story in there, but um, I love that age group as, as, um, as no fictional device sort of, because they're so, they're at the cusp of knowing, they know so much and they also are little babies, um, and they have this real internal struggle going on between, like, am I a baby or am I, you know, a big middle schooler? Um, and so they both want to be, I mean, kind of like all of us, you know, we want to be babied, and we want, but we also would like to be treated like adults. Um, and so they're also, what I love about children in general is that they are often, like, real experts in something. And like for me, I could have told you every single body part of a horse um, for a long time. And now I, you know, couldn't do it if you gave me a test. (laughs) Um, And there's a lot of, even it starts with young as toddlers. They like know, um, you know, every kind of construction equipment. (laughs) Yeah, every dinosaur, every, um, most kids go through it in in some way or another. Um, And so I, I just love that. And in, in Rabbit Cake, it really is used that uh, Elvis, um, 
has an extensive extensive knowledge of animals. And so she's using like the animal world and the science world to try to make sense of her mother's death um, and finding that it's not really working that well because <laughs> it's so much unknowable and not, not something you can scientifically track. Um, but so fifth graders just, um, they crack me up in a lot of ways and but they are also very wise and so I love writing their dialogue and I love thinking about them and so I don't know I I don't know when I'm going to write a book that doesn't have kids of a certain age in it um, <laughs> or when I'm going to write a book that doesn't have animals in it um, so well why um, you don't need to I guess not I, no. I you know like <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, I yeah. think you follow your obsessions. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. I was I was recently listening, just finished actually, an audio book that had um, fifth graders that that exact age group as main characters. Cloud Cuckoo Land. Have you heard of that one? Yeah, I've heard I, I've heard of it, but and I like I like his writing, but I haven't read it. And you liked it? You liked yeah, the audio too? yeah. You know, it was. It was interesting because when I first started listening to it, I wasn't sure because there are all these different storylines going on and you're not, it's like, what do these have to do with each other? You know, different characters, different eras, different, um, um, you know, different planets practically. And mm. it's hard to figure out the connection. But then once you get it, it's so charming. And, um, and the fifth graders are wonderful. I have I have grandkids oh, of, of that age group and it is an apps it's just I, I told my granddaughter recently that we were painting she wanted to learn to paint and so we were painting together we took a, a zoom class and then we were doing things and she's so creative she's she had been watching stuff on YouTube to learn how to do it but hadn't really tried it and I said you know this is my this is like my dream to do things like this with you <laughs> And now, you're, and now you're old enough to do it and want to do it. <laughs> That's awesome. I know. Yeah. I know. And, and you're right. They, they have so much knowledge, especially nowadays. Mm-hmm. With... Yeah. I mean, they're, <laughs> they're sophisticated and wise, but also, but also they need our guidance. Uh, is, yes. And they're still really children. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That yeah. being on that cusp of of uh, growing up. It's, it is a fascinating time. So, so Annie, I had noticed on your website that you in the past had published a lot of essays and short stories, but they're all, the dates on them are all a few years ago. So are you still writing in that format at all? Um, I did write an essay that some of it is I haven't updated the website, although, but I don't really, I haven't written a short story in a long time. I usually write them when um, now when people ask me to write them for things. And, um, so I, I am writing something now for that someone asked me to write. Um, and, uh, I did write a short story that, I mean, uh, and I had, um, about this drawing project that I did that's on a lit hub. So I'll have to put that on my, um, on my, uh, essay section, um, about sort of how, 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 what it meant to me to draw for other people that it turned out to be much more meaningful than I, than I had expected, but um, I love the expanse of the novel. So I I think that short stories. Sometimes I'll try to write a short story. And I'll be like, is this a novel now? Now that I know <laughs> sort of the pleasures of um, of uh, you know, one thing I love about a novel is that you can write and you can write something, and then you let your reader forget that little thing and then you bring it back up later and it's just like this magic trick that you can't do in a short story mm. um, because you read a short story in one sitting and and it's and you don't forget anything that happens because you can put it all in your head and a novel um, one of the hard things about it and the pleasurable things about it is that you'll forget and then when it comes up later you're like I remember that and that's so cool <laughs> that it, um, and then and you don't so, even know when you're writing it to begin with that 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 you're gonna yeah. that it's gonna come up later. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's um, sometimes you just put something in that seems random, but then um, and that that is back to John Irving, my um, my so much my inspiration for this book. Um, he puts in things that are random, and then they really come 
put to use in the end. And that's one thing I wanted to do with unlikely animals. But um, maybe it sounds like this Anthony Dorr book does that too. It seems like everything feels yes. disconnected. And then once it's connected, it's like hugely he, satisfying. Absolutely. Absolutely. And another author that, um, that your book reminded me of was Tom Robbins. Have you heard that no, before? I haven't read him either. Oh, I have heard Oh my him. gosh, you have got to read him. <laughs> Someone, you know, I said that I only read John Irving because people told me that that I that I wrote like him and then the but one of these, you know, I I try not to read my reviews but I always do. Um and there's this Amazon review that said, you know, if if John Irving and Tom Robbins had a baby, this is what they would come up with. Um and so so I love that, but then I went, you know, because other people had ta- told me John Irving, then I went just to John Irving, but I, I haven't gone to Tom Robbins yet, so I, I should. Okay, so um, um, if you if you Start do, where? Where do I start? Jitterbug yeah. Perfume, which I think is one of his earlier ones. Well, it's not the earliest, mm. but it's kind of in the middle, Jitterbug Perfume. And, okay. Um, and then the other one that I really liked was Fierce Invalids Home from Hot Climbs climates oh. yeah and he's he's the cowgirls get the blues yes that's yeah, yeah. Oh, okay but yeah. that was not my favorite okay i will start with <laughs> jitterbug perfume right. he's a great he makes great titles yes he um, does he does <laughs> so you mentioned that um your mfa professor had said that um not all first novels get published and don't don't be too don't be discouraged if yours doesn't, but yours did. Can you tell us a little bit about your path to publication? Yeah, so I was lucky, very lucky in a lot of ways, although I've also had a lot of rejection too, as anybody does, um, whether or not they did tell you about it. Um, so I, uh, I got an agent. Well, I did, I did, um, I did, um, go out to look for an agent twice. So I finished my first draft of Rabbi Cake and I did a very rookie mistake, which was like, it's done. I'm not going to even think about it. I'm going to send it out to agents. Um, and so I just Googled, you know, how do you get an agent and should have had a bunch of people read it before I got to that step, but I didn't. And so I sent it out to about five agents sort of the second I finished it. And um, I did get lucky that they wanted to read it. Um, and I did get lucky that they sent me feedback on it. Um, but they said, you know what you do, it's great until that's page 60 and then it gets crazy. And I don't know what, <laughs> what you're thinking, but it really goes off the rails at around 60 and you got to like rein it in. Um, so I took it back for several months and I, you know, changed this really crazy plot that I had, um, and changed it. And then I sent it out again and I did another murky mistake, which was I sent it out on December 19th, um, which is people say don't query during the summer, which I don't think is actually, um, necessary advice because, you know, things might move slower, but people are working. Nobody works on December 19th. Um, they are getting things off their desk and then they are leaving for two weeks. Um, publishing is like a really old fashioned industry in that way, or everybody, you know, doesn't really work the second half of December. Um, so, but I did, I got an agent right away and she has been wonderful and sort of, I couldn't be more, you know, creatively connected to a person. So I have, uh, my agent's name is Katie Graham. Um, and then we, we edited it together and then she sold it eventually after lots of rejection, um, from sort of the bigger houses to Tin House. Um, and my editor there was wonderful. Um, and then, um, and then I did, um, want to see if I could, um, get more money. So we sold Unlikely Animals to Random House, um, which can give you more money than mm. Tin House as much as I love Tin House. And, um, and I also, but I've also really, really loved my experience with Random House, my editor there. So, um, and did you, it, um, did you finish writing Unlikely Animals before you sold it or were you able yes, to sell it? I yes. finished, 
I finished Unlikely Animals before I sold it. So I haven't yet had an experience of selling a book before I finish it. And I don't know. Um, I, I've heard advice from people who have all sorts of good experiences with that and bad experiences with that, that it, whether writing on a deadline is good for creativity or it's not. Um, I, I kind of, I think I had to finish on like animals before I showed it to anybody because it is such a, a wild book that you hear <laughs> described. Um, and maybe this is true for all my writing is like, you kind of have to see it on the page and um, because it, uh, it's kind of like I describe it as someone and people are like, mm, good luck with that. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, it's a funny book about the opioid crisis with also pieces of historical fiction woven through. It's like, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is definitely, it, it, to be honest, when I first got the pitch for this book, I thought like, oh, I don't, that doesn't sound that interesting to me. <laughs> and then once I started reading it, I was completely captivated. Every post on Instagram about this book is, <laughs> I thought it wasn't for me. It's now my favorite book. Yeah, um, yeah. So. So, <laughs> I'm not but sure. I think the cover does, and, and I, you know, and I don't think it's anybody's like marketing. Yeah, I think my marketing people are the best ever. It's just, it's a hard book to describe. It's my fault. Um but I think the cover does a beautiful job getting people interested in it because the cover is so visually beautiful. Um, so that's true. That's true. And and it's you're, obviously you're getting a lot of great press. Um, yeah. Well, people do trust like word of mouth, so that's um, yeah. They've everybody's doing a good job, but it is a it is a funny book to talk about because it's not easy to describe. You know, I've I just read an article about how TikTok is becoming like the major driver of book sales. And it's not the publishers, it's not the marketing teams, it's readers. Um, have you um, have you had anyone make TikTok I... videos about your books? Uh, people just don't, yeah, people don't know what to do with TikTok. No. <laughs> See, I, and I think literary fiction doesn't really know what to do with TikTok because TikTok, for the most part, has been huge for, like, romance and fantasy, and um, some literary fiction has broken through, um, you know, The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, I think is the title of that book, uh, um, became a bestseller, like, seven years after that book came out, uh, which, or five years, maybe, um, but, yeah, I haven't, I did join TikTok, and I posted a couple of videos that I already had, but I was kind of like, this Space is confusing to me. Yeah, um, yeah. It's uh, you kind. Of, I, I, you kind of have to like either invest a lot of time in it, or you know, I think not engage. So right now, my uh, I don't have that much time. <laughs> um, but I, I think it's you know whatever gets people reading is a good thing. So. That is true. That is true. Away. The other, the, this article was about, or mentioned, um, can't remember her name now, but the author of um, Circe, Madeline. Oh, Madeline Miller. Yeah, yeah. yeah that yeah. that TikTok really, and it wasn't her doing it. It wasn't her being on TikTok. She's still not on TikTok, but it was other people, just readers. So that's, yeah, from that's what kind I know about her, I can't picture her on TikTok. I mean, yeah. you have to have. Well, I don't know. It's it's. You kind of have to have a personality, right? I mean, not that she doesn't have a personality, but like have to have to have want want to have a social media personality. And I think, um, uh, yeah, it's um, it's something that will be interesting to see what happens in the next like three to five years with yeah. TikTok. Yeah. Oh. Well, Annie, it's really been a pleasure talking to you today. Um, despite our technical difficulties, <laughs> yeah. but um, and we always close with quotes. So I found one about animals, since animals play such an important part in this book. Until one has loved an animal, a part of one's soul remains unawakened, and that's by Anatoly France. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you, and I'm really looking forward to your next book. And actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back and read Rabbit Cake too. 
Oh, thank you. I hope you like it. <laughs> thank you. Bye-bye, and see you all next, Thanks, see you all next week on Writer's Voices. Thank you.